In Pilgrim's Progress, Christians saw the two men, as Bunyan called them, formalist and hypocrisy, climbing over the wall and running quickly to catch up uh, with him. And they didn't come through the gate. They didn't come past the cross. Uh, And for one reason or another, they thought they could use a shortcut. They wanted to avoid the costly path of repentance. Um, And they they like the sound of going to the heavenly city. And there are many people who like the sound of going to heaven. But they won't come the proper way. Um, And ignorance is another one that we meet in Pilgrim's Progress, who wants to go to the heavenly city and in fact gets the whole way to the gate. But we find... And the last words of Pilgrim's Progress are haunting. I I didn't copy them down and bring them with me, but Bunyan says, as he sees ignorance being turned away and Christian and hopeful entering in, he says, and so I saw that there is a doorway to hell, even from the gates of heaven. So it's vital. There is no more important question uh, for us than what is repentance. How do we start properly on this journey? The stakes are high. Some think they're going to heaven simply because they're born in a Christian home or in a Christian country. Some think they're going to heaven because they're church-going people. Some think they're going to heaven because they're not too bad. They're very moral, upright people. Why do you think you're going to heaven? How have you started on this journey? You see, this is vital for all of us this morning. If we haven't yet put our trust in Christ, we need to learn how to start the journey properly. It's vital for us if we have put our trust in Christ because the path of repentance is where you start the Christian life, but it's the path that you stay on. We keep on repenting. And so what we're seeing this morning is not repentance itself. It's the ways that God uses to bring people to it. How he pokes at their conscience. How he uses difficulty to to awaken them. How he even uses kindness to push them and direct them. And that's what we want to see. And then as we'll finish this morning, we want to see also that to trust God is not to waste our time. Joseph's brothers are godless men. Reuben, the firstborn, had shamelessly slept with one of his father's concubines. Sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, had engaged in ethnic cleansing of a city. All of them, with the exception of Benjamin, had been complicit in selling Joseph into slavery. Although at first they were going to leave him to die. And yet these are meant to be God's people. And you can certainly say that it's not because of any good in them. God is going to have to transform these men. These men, if they're going to be the people of God, are going to need to repent. But how are they going to get there? And the incredible thing is that God has spent 20 years getting Joseph into the right attitude of heart and mind and into the right location of position and authority so that 
These men can be brought to repentance. We've seen in an earlier passage how God has been working in Judah's life through his daughter-in-law Tamar, and he's been poking at Judah's conscience. But now as a group, these men are, by God, they're being set out on that pathway to repentance. And I want us uh, to consider this this morning under a number of different headings, uh, three at least, and we we may have one at the end uh, as well. First of all, God's providences poke at our conscience. God's providences. What do we mean by providences? Some people would call it luck or chance or coincidence. But God's in control of everything. And sometimes God uses our circumstances to poke at us, to stir us. And we see that in the opening verses. Famine is beginning to bite in Canaan. Their stomachs are starting to rumble. And we read that Jacob has heard that there's grain in Egypt. And he knows his sons have heard this too, that there's grain in Egypt. And that little word Egypt is mentioned three times in these three verses. Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. And yet... Jacob's sons are sitting with their two arms the one length and their feet up doing nothing. And Jacob eventually says to them, and you can sense his his exasperation, why do you keep sitting here? Why do you keep looking at each other? He says, what are you doing sitting here? You can imagine them sitting just... And why is it that they're just sitting there? They've heard there's food in Egypt. Well, Egypt's the last place they want to go. Their conscience is burdened by something they did 20 years previous. Something they did, for thus the equivalent would be in 1998. And it's buried. It's buried, but Egypt brings it to the surface. They had sent someone to Egypt. They think he's dead. Reuben will talk about we have to account for his blood. And they had sent someone to Egypt and they'd buried that fact in their memories. And now they're looking at each other and you can see the the sweat sweat beginning to form. Don't talk about Egypt. Don't mention Egypt. But God is unearthing. God is digging up the past. And there's another sting in what is said. Twenty years might have passed, but Jacob still has his suspicions. Ten of the brothers go, and why is it only ten? Look at verse 4. Jacob did not send Benjamin because he was afraid that harm might come to him. How would harm come to him with ten big brothers with him? Now, Jacob at this stage, or Benjamin at this stage, is probably somewhere in the region of of 22, 23, 24 uh, at least. Um, That's assuming he was an infant when Joseph was sold into slavery. I wonder if Jacob has his suspicions. Anyway, there's a sting in Jacob not sending Benjamin with the brothers. What's going on? God is poking. God is starting to stir, to awaken, to break down their defenses. You see, repentance requires acknowledging guilt. Repentance requires admitting 
that we have been sinning. Repentance requires that we stop making excuses. Repentance requires that we stop blaming others. Repentance requires that we admit the past or the present. We say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Forgive me, please. You see, we can numb our consciences, but sometimes God in His kindness pokes at them to stir them up again. Remember Herod? Herod had John the Baptist put to death. He had sort of liked listening to John the Baptist. Um, but then he put him to death at the request of his, his wife. And then Jesus starts preaching and working miracles, and Herod starts to panic. And what does he think? John the Baptist has been raised to life again. God is poking at his conscience. But what does Herod do? He ignores the poking. He ignores it, and he's going to be damned forever because he ignores the poking. You see God's sovereignty backing these men gently into a corner. They don't know there's a corner there yet, but God is corralling them towards it, awakening their consciences, forcing them. They're going to have to walk in Joseph's shackled footsteps. They had last seen him chained or tied up, walking off, pleading with them as he's dragged along behind a camel. They're going to have to face those footsteps. So has God been poking at your conscience? Has God uh, been awakening it, perhaps? Has he been backing you towards a corner? It may be that you're a Christian, and there's things that you know you need uh, to admit to. Recent things or far distant things, 20 years ago perhaps, that they dealt with. And God has been reminding you of them, putting his finger on them. And he does that out of kindness. It's the pathway to repentance. It's the hand of God pressing in you. And perhaps this morning you're not yet a Christian. Don't ignore that. Don't numb your conscience. These brothers are being backed into a corner by God, but what's going to be the outcome? Because of it, they are going to live forever. Not, well, they are going to live forever. They're going to, they're going to survive the famine. Life is going to come to them because of this. And not only are they going to survive the famine, they're going to survive the famine at the highest level. Their whole families are going to be cared for by Pharaoh himself. Because Pharaoh cares for Joseph. What an incredible result that comes because of them allowing their conscience to be stirred. And if you haven't yet come to Christ, follow those promptings so that you might have life from God himself. God pokes at our conscience by his providences. Secondly, God's trials awaken our conscience. God's trials awaken our consciences. Verses 6 to 24. The screw continues to tighten. God is acting through Joseph here. In a sense, we have to see Joseph as God's ambassador. As if God is using Joseph's words and Joseph's actions as if it were God himself acting. 
And we shouldn't think Joseph is being vindictive or motivated by revenge. We'll see that his heart is tender, even when his voice is harsh. So the brothers arrive, and it's Joseph that they meet. But Joseph, when they last saw him, was a gangly youth of 17 with perhaps a scrawny beard. And now he is a shaven-headed, shaven-faced Egyptian, speaking the Egyptian language. They don't recognize him, but he knows them because, well, they were in their late 20s, perhaps early 30s, perhaps even into their 40s. And, well, you don't change as much in those 20 years. And Joseph recognizes them and he sees that his dream is coming true, but not fully yet because it was 11 were bowing down and his father and mother, but they're not here yet. It's only 10. And I believe that Joseph sees God's hand in this. God is at work. And Joseph sets out to test his brothers, we're told, in verse 14 and verse 16. And he speaks to them harshly be a perfectly reasonable thing for an Egyptian to do because they have all the food in that part of the world. All the grain is theirs. The nations would have been sending spies and so Joseph, or sorry, the brothers would expect to be suspected as spies. You know, a group of, a significant group of men come looking around. It's an obvious accusation, but I wonder too if it's what the brothers said about Joseph back In chapter 37, when Jacob had sent him to keep an eye on what the brothers were up to. We're not told what accusation they might have made, but I wonder if they said to him, you are a spy. A filthy little telltale. A spy. Running and telling father what we've been doing. Anyhow, Joseph says, you are spies. You are plotting. You are scheming. You have ulterior motives in what you are doing. The accusers, they deny it. And he accuses them again. He just says the same thing. And they blurt out more facts. They say, no, we're not spies. We're brothers. We're all related. We're not just ten men who have banded together. We're we're related. There used to be twelve of us. The youngest is with father. And the the, the next one, well, he's dead. And Joseph says, ha, ha. You're definitely spies. Yes, you're from some great ruling family in Canaan, would be the implication. And he has sent nearly all of his sons to spy, but not all of them, because you would always keep one back to keep the family line going. You're definitely spies. That's perhaps the thinking behind what he keeps uh, saying here. You know how he wants them to understand it. And then Joseph demands to see the youngest And he throws them all in prison for three days. And he gives them a glimpse of what captivity is like. They had sold him to be a slave. And their consciences are being stirred. And then in verse 18, Joseph stirs a bit more. He says, now, he brings them out of of custody and he says to them, now, I fear God. Not, I fear God's. That's what you expect an Egyptian to say, I fear the gods. That's what you would expect a Canaanite to say, I fear the gods. But there's only one group of people who believe in one God. And he says, I fear God. And he's 
bringing God before their eyes and their ears. And you can start to see their consciences being awakened. Verse 21. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. And you can, you've got that moment of replay. It's still fresh in their minds. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And then Reuben. Reuben, he says, remember how Reuben had said, let's not do this, let's do this, and, I'll co-, and he was going to come back and take him out of the pit and take him to safety. Reuben says, verse 22, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? The boy. There's tenderness there. But there's his conscience. He calls it sin. Sin. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. And Joseph can hear it all and understand it all. And we see his tenderness. He turns away and weeps. He doesn't gloat. He doesn't go, yes, now they're really feeling it. Now I'll crank the the volume up a bit more and make them really suffer. He weeps. One writer says, Joseph's tactics are harsh, but his emotions are tender. I want you to know it's the same with God. Sometimes he uses trials to bring us to repentance. And it may be hard. It may be severe. It may be a severe mercy. But God uses it because his heart is tender towards us. Paul writes in Second Corinthians 7, verse 9 and 10, For you became sorrowful, as God intended. You see, here's the pathway to repentance. You became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So Joseph, uh, under God, is being used to stir their consciences. And he brings trial to them. And he has Simeon put in chains. He's just found out that Reuben had pleaded for mercy. And so he doesn't put the oldest one in chains, but he puts the second in command in chains and has him bound in front of the brothers as he had once been bound. You see, there's kindness in this. The kindness of God through Joseph. God hasn't given up on these men. God hasn't given up on these men. God is using these trials to awaken and to convict. In a sense, we're getting a God's eye view here. And the brothers must have been bewildered. But everything is pointing, every moment is pointing them to what we did to Joseph 20 years ago. It's being laid bare before their eyes. All their schemes, all their deceitfulness, all their covering up. It's as if they're going, how do, what's going, and, and it, it can only be God. It can only be God. I wonder then, even as they went back that time, having sold their brother, did they, they had to hide the silver, didn't they? And now one of them opens his bag, and there's silver in the bag. And another moment, you can just, are we being haunted here? What's happening? What's happening? And they say, What is this that God has done to us? 
I know that it's God at work. God's trials are bringing them to repentance. Sometimes it is that God is severe with us to bring us to repentance. He brings us into trials so that we will come to admit our sin. Now, don't read that backwards. Don't read that because we're in trials, we therefore must have sinned. He may have many reasons to bring us to trial, but sometimes, sometimes he brings us into trial and to reveal our sin. And it will be very clear. These brothers weren't going, I wonder why this is happening. It's crystal clear to them why it's happening. They can see it. The circumstances are mirroring their deceitfulness. It's being brought to the surface. They don't have to scratch their heads and, and search their hearts. I wonder why. No, not sure. They know why. And so it is with us. And when God brings us into trial to uncover our sin, it is very clear. And it is no kindness if he allows us to keep on believing a lie. To let us think that we get away with it. There's no kindness. Then thirdly, we see then also that God's kindness itself is used to put us on the pathway to repentance. God's kindness thirdly directs our consciences. Verse 25 to 38. Joseph is sending the brothers back. Apart from Simeon, I I think he's more or less finished testing them at this point. Of course, the test is, will they abandon another brother? They had abandoned Joseph. Will they abandon another brother? And he sends them off. But what does he do? There's something lovely here. He gives them grain. He, He says to them, look, I want you to go back to your starving households. That's tenderness. And then he gives them grain. He sells them the grain. He puts their money back in their sacks. Joseph, perhaps, is going to pay for it himself. But more than that, he sends provisions with them. Did you notice that? Verse 25. He sends provisions with them um, for the journey, the long journey home. That's grace. That's extra kindness. But they set off. And they stop for food and one of them opens his sack and there's the money. And they're saying, what is this that God has done to us? It's the first time the brothers have ever mentioned God. There's the power of a guilty conscience. Even the kindness of Joseph. The kindness that God is displaying to them is pushing them towards admitting their guilt. And then later, after they've told their father the story, each of them is opening his sack. And there, each of them discovers their money. And now they're they're more terrified. Why is that? They feel the noose tightening around them. that, That they're going to have to admit their guilt. God has brought it to the surface. But you see how he's used kindness here. Generosity. To bring it to the surface. And we're starting to see change. Reuben. Reuben. Uh, he says to his father. Look. It's a bit rash. But you start to see him changing. And, and he says. Yes. I will guarantee the safety of Benjamin. If I don't bring him back safe. Well then you can kill my two sons. It's a bit rash. But. He's changing. God is using even. All of these circumstances, but even the the kindness of Joseph 
is like the last piece of the jigsaw that's pushing these men to repentance. And in Romans 2, Paul writes, he says, verse 4, Or do you not, sorry, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Kindness is to lead them to repentance. Has God been kind to you? God was kind to Paul. Paul was arresting Christians and imprisoning them and torturing them and murdering them. And God was stunningly kind. He showed mercy to him until Paul came to repentance. God does that with us. He's kind and he he gives you food and life and health. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't punish us immediately. And his kindness is to lead us to repentance. Paul speaks of his kindness, forbearance and patience to bring us to repentance. Why does Joseph not just reveal himself now? Why prolong things? Because repentance isn't a matter of words. Repentance is proved by actions, not tears and fears. And so he's wanting to see the change in these men. We're starting to see it. But remember, Joseph is in Egypt. He needs the brothers to come back before he can see it. We're getting a glimpse of it in the journey home, the conviction these men are under. Has God been kind to you? Maybe that you're not a Christian. Maybe that you've been having a good life without God. But that kindness is to lead you to repentance, to turn around. Maybe that you are a Christian, but matters are not right Uh, aspects are not right in your life. Well, don't presume on God's kindness that it means that he's happy with it. His kindness is to bring you to repentance. Three things about the pathway to repentance. I'm going to finish with two applications. One is, what should we do? One is repent. If you find that God has been poking your conscience, using trial to awaken you, or even kindness to point you to him, then repent. Whether that's to start the Christian life or to keep on going in the Christian life, repent. Go and seek forgiveness. Go and admit to him and to whoever else it needs to be admitted to that you were wrong and that this needs to be dealt with. Repent. The second application We're nearly going to make it a fourth point, but we'll put it in here as an application. Trust. Trust. We see God's plan for Joseph coming true. You see, we're to repent and trust, to turn and trust. And we need to see that if we're going to repent and put our trust in God, that God does not let his people down. And that's what Joseph is saying here. The brothers are learning about repentance, but Joseph is saying, wow, God keeps his promise. My dreams are coming true. And he's not wasted his time trusting God. Jacob, on the other hand, is a stark contrast. Jacob despairs. Jacob forgets the promises. Jacob thinks that everything is lost and Joseph is lost and Simeon is lost and everybody's lost. You're all against me. He's lost in self-pity. He's not hanging on in trust. What a contrast 
with Joseph, who's hung on to God through it all. And what does Joseph find? He finds that God is sovereign. And God's plans are bigger than our plans. But they're often slower than our plans, aren't they? Twenty years. They're slower than our plans would ever be. But what does Joseph find? That even though they're slow, he finds that God keeps his word. He finds that our momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory, that we're not wasting our time repenting and trusting God. Let me encourage you this morning to keep trusting God. You're not wasting your time. And let me say that does this not give us wonderful hope for family members who aren't yet trusting in Christ? The pathway to repentance can be long. But God has been working for 20 years in the lives of these men. Behind the scenes. They didn't know anything about it, but now he's starting to poke at them. And to awaken them. For 20 years they've gone their own godless way. God took years of patient working in the background. And now he's working to bring these men to repentance. And for some of us who have family and friends, particularly family who don't yet trust Christ, take heart here in the sovereignty of God. And pray that God will be awakening the consciences of those we love by whatever means. Amen. If we're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. O Lord God, you who control all things, you who orchestrate everything, How we thank you that you did this for many of us in this room. You have poked and prodded at our conscience. You have stirred us to admit our sin. And you have brought us to our knees in repentance. And we thank you for that. We look back over the ways. Some things, little incidental things. Some things, big trials. And yet you were faithful. And you brought us to admit our guilt and sin. And you've been keeping on doing it, Lord, showing us our sin, and help us to have tender consciences that admit quickly our guilt so that we can keep walking before you. Father in heaven, we pray for our friends and our family who are as yet outside of Christ, maybe living godly lives, or maybe living godless lives, maybe living rather moral lives rather than godly lives, but living moral lives and seeing no need of you. Lord, I pray that you would poke at their conscience, that you would bring, if it need be, severe mercy into their lives, or that you would point them through your kindnesses and grace to their need of you. But Lord, help us as we wait and pray to have a confidence in your sovereign timing as well as your sovereign acting. Father, we ask, above all, that we would have tender consciences, that we would see quickly our guilt, 
and our sin for what it is and turn from it and turn to Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.